Every good and perfect gift, Lord, comes down from you. And we've got plenty of them. Have we ever been uh, favored by your hand? We, we are, gosh, we're, we're just overwhelmed with all you have done for us. We could have been born in a little tribal village in Africa somewhere. We could have been born in the mountains of Afghanistan, uh, never heard the gospel. But that's not our story. Um, we have been given so much. We want to acknowledge that that all comes from your hand. It's good just to stop for a little bit of time and just ponder that. Just think about it. All that has been given to us. Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. You're so consistent. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. So we are grateful. We're grateful tonight that we're not studying the Koran. We're grateful that we're studying the Bible. We very easily could be studying that other book, but you have opened our eyes and drawn us to yourself. You've done a work in our lives. It's certainly not of us. We know that. It's of you. Once again, we have so much to be thankful for. We also have needs because this is a hard life and it's a difficult life, and you told us it would be that way. There will be a time when there are no more difficulties and no more trials and no more tears. But this is not that time. In the world, we'll have tribulation, you told us. And we've all got it, and we're all dealing with it. You've been gracious, though, in the way that you have allowed hardship to come into our lives. And uh, as we'll see tonight, and as we have studied Last week and in past months, you used that in our lives to temper us and to mature us and to make us into the kind of men you want us to be. But we need to be reminded of that fact on a, on a perpetual and on a constant basis. We thank you for this church. We thank you for the work that you're doing here. It's remarkable to think that 10 years ago, Stonebriar Church didn't exist. It exists now. We look back and we see your good providential hand and how you have put this ministry together and brought in folks and brought in the right people at the right time. And We're grateful for, um, for Chuck and for his commitment to the Word and that he never varies from it, that he teaches it consistently. He's not afraid to tell the truth. We're grateful to have leadership like that. We would pray for ourselves tonight that you would give us hearts and minds that um, are easy for you to work with. Think of that promise in Psalm 32 where you say, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. 
there are guys in here and we are praying and we are asking you to make the next step clear. We're asking you to reveal your will and you have promised to us to do that. I will instruct you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But then you go on and say, but don't be as the horse or as the mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check. We don't want to be those who ask for your will and then are resistant to your will. We don't want to be like a horse that refuses to go the way of the rider. We don't want to be chomping at the bit and fighting you and resisting you. We're asking for teachable spirits and for teachable hearts. And then this time will be instructive and then this time will be beneficial for all of us. But without that teachable spirit, we're just wasting our time. So, Lord, your word um, is without error. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's why we're going to open this book tonight. Once again, we ask that you give us what we need. We think we know what we need. Many times we don't. So would you give us what we need? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was kind of surprised at Christmas because I got a gift I wasn't expecting. Um, I got my second video camera. Uh, the first video camera I got in 1981. That's why uh, Mary got me another video camera, because the one we've got now is sort of an antique. In fact, someone encouraged me to take it to the Antiques Roadshow the next time they came to town and see what it was worth and how valuable it was. Uh, 1981, we were just starting out, you know, had, um, had, uh, had uh, one little girl, and uh, one more on the way, and um, another one would come after that. So we went out and got a video camera, this newfangled thing. This first video camera that I had, uh, this camera, this sucker weighed about 86 pounds. And, uh, but that wasn't all there was to it, because I had this, this, this big honking contraption, and, and you'd put it on your shoulder, but then in order to operate it, you, you, you had to have a VCR with a battery pack, and, and that, that must have weighed another 60 or 70 pounds. So you got this camera on your shoulder, and then you got this video pack uh, hanging off here, and it came complete with a gift certificate to see a chiropractor, because every time you use it, you're going to screw yourself up and get yourself out of alignment. Uh, the other thing I remember about it was that in order to get it in focus, and it was funny because over Christmas, we were watching some of the old videos when our kids were little. And inevitably, what happens is it comes on and it's out of focus. Because what you got to do to get it in focus, you got to zoom in to the furthest point, and then you clear it up and focus it, and then you pull back and then everything's in focus. That was my first video camera. Now, this new one I got, that I opened up on Christmas morning, I didn't even know it was a video camera because the box was so small. And I open that sucker up, and that sucker fits in the palm of my hand. Uh, it's just amazing. It's just a little, well, you've probably seen, you probably, I, I wasn't aware of video. I don't pay much attention. But I was really kind of shocked how small it was. And it's, 
It does all kinds of things. It only does videos. You take pictures with it. Still picture. I mean, you guys are looking at me like, yeah, yeah. Join the human race here. My point is I got a new camera. Um, and everybody was excited. I was excited. My kids are excited about it. In fact, I haven't seen it since I opened it because they've already absconded with it and they're using it. Uh, I'm looking forward to using it. Um, there are some things in common with the other camera. And uh, it's all updated and it's, you know, it's all high tech now. And, you know, it's got, um, I don't know, probably some kind of hard drive. And, you know, it'll make popcorn. It'll do all kinds of stuff. It's unbelievable. But you know what? It's still got that button to zoom in and to zoom out. My, my other one had that. This new one has it. It's much better because you just zoom. It's always in focus. That's what's great. Um, thing about cameras is when you zoom in, you get, when you, when you zoom in, you get a certain, when you do a close-up, you get a certain perspective. Then you can zoom out and you get another perspective. We mentioned last week at the book of James, right out of the blocks, he doesn't miss around, he doesn't spend a lot of time on uh, niceties, he, he's not asking how the kids are, how the family is, James a follower of Christ. Uh, if you look at James, the James we're talking about here is, is the half-brother um, half of Jesus, and he really doesn't spend a lot of time identifying himself because uh, they knew who he was. He says, James, a bondservant. I'm a servant of Christ. They knew who he was. He greets those who are dispersed, and then he gets right into it. And what does he talk about? He talks about trials. Uh, he talks about the fi fact that for these believers, life is hard and life is difficult, and they're going through some stuff that for some of them is threatening to overwhelm them. They're going through some stuff that some of them three months before weren't going through, but they're going through now. Uh, 30 days ago, they're going through stuff now they weren't going through 30 days ago. And they're kind of shocked and they're kind of stunned. Uh, you know, Peter says this. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery, orde fiery ordeal that you're going through. As though some strange thing were happening to you. But hardships come and trials come and difficulties come and we're, we're surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because throughout the scripture, God tells us that life is hard and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult, and that there are going to be trials, and there's going to be hardship. Now, we dealt with these opening verses last week, but uh, there were some things I skipped over, and I did it on purpose. I wanted to swing back tonight and pick up a couple of things. Uh, the first thing I skipped over was the very first thing that he says in verse 2. Let's read the verses. We'll come back to it. He says, "'Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials.'" knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, because you see, when you're going through a trial, when you're going through a trial, that's when you really need wisdom. A lot of times we think that, uh, 
this verse promises something it doesn't promise. A lot of times we go through trials, and the first word out of our mouth is, why? Why, why do I have leukemia? Why is my wife, why does she have breast cancer? Why is my kid who I raised to know Christ and read the scriptures to, why is he off away from Christ as far as he possibly could be? Why? See, when hardship and trials and difficulties come into our life, oh, let him ask of God. You need wisdom? We want to know why. Wisdom doesn't mean God will tell you why. It means he will tell you how. Now, here's how you navigate through this trial. And by the way, have you noticed he doesn't give you a 90-day plan on how to navigate the trial? We come to him every day. Every day. In the Old Testament, when Israel wandered in the wilderness, and they wandered for how long? They wandered for 40 years. Every day they needed fresh manna. Every day they needed God to supply. And that's how God gets you through a trial. God supplies you every day what you need to get through that day and to navigate through the trial. And then days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and you get through a trial, a trial you thought you'd never get through. And, and many of us in this room, we've walked with Christ long enough now that we've got a history, and we can look back over our lives and our walk with Christ, and we can remember a time in our lives when we were shocked and stunned because we got nailed by a trial. Uh, trials oftentimes, um, I think, come in waves. They come in threes. They come in fours. You ever go up Pacific Coast Highway in California at certain places, uh, you get a clear view of the beach uh, I'm, I'm talking about Pacific Coast Highway, not, not the freeway. I'm talking about old Highway 1. And, and you go up and you can still see the beach in certain places where they haven't built houses. And, and uh, at certain points, you'll see surfers out there, and they'll have their backs turned to the, to the beach. They're not surfing. And for people out of town or Midwest, they're not familiar with what's going on. What are those guys doing? What are they, why aren't they surfing? Well, they're in a waves. Waves come in sets, and so you might have 10, 12, 15 waves, and then it's quiet, and then it's calm. And when it's calm, what those surfers do is they turn their backs to the beach, and they're just looking out on the horizon. They're sitting on their boards, and they're talking to each other, and they're just scoping, and they're just talking and waiting, and then all of a sudden, here they come. And you'll see them. They start turning around, and here's going to come another 10, 12 14 ways. Oftentimes in the Christian life, when we encounter various trials, we just don't get one. Now, if you've just had a trial, I don't want you getting nervous here. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to raise your anxiety level. But can I say this to you? Because the Lord oversees your trials. He's in control of your trials. So can I say this to you? Being extremely realistic, if you're in a trial and you think, I might get another one, you know what? You might get another one. And can I tell you this? If you do, it's okay. Because he's in control of the trial. He's in charge of those trials. He governs the trials. He knows precisely where we are, and he knows precisely what we need in our lives. He oversees. God micromanages our lives. And the good that comes into our lives, 
and the difficulty that comes into our lives. You say, well, I always thought that was from Satan. Well, Satan's a player. He's a part of it. But do you remember when Satan wanted to afflict Job? Did he just go afflict Job? No, he had to come before God, and he had to ask for permission because God is in control, and God is in control of Satan and his activity. He cannot go beyond the, the parameters that God has placed in a believer's life. He couldn't go beyond what God allowed him to do in, in Job's life. So Satan was a player, but he's a controlled player. He's on a leash. He's on a chain. Martin Luther used to say the devil is God's devil. So God is in control. But nevertheless, sometimes these, come, these things come in waves, and you'll get hit once, and you know, it's, if you've ever been out on the beach somewhere, and it's amazing how much power is in a wave. Uh, I, when I was uh, in college, there, there's, uh, there's a very famous body surfing place called The Wedge in Newport Beach. And uh, I'd been down, at some friends of mine, we went to Laguna Beach to some high school. They were showing this surf movie. And uh, they showed these guys body surfing. You don't use a board at the wedge, you, use, you just body surf. And, uh, and the thing about the wedge, the, the, just the way, it, the reason they call it the wedge is that when the waves come in, the, the wave, it's sort of like a miniature tsunami, and it, it sucks all the water down the tide, and then it rolls up real high, and when you catch one of those waves, and you're on top, and you look down, suddenly there's no water there. There's just gravel and maybe some coral, and it's real exciting. Um, and the best guys in the world body surf at the wedge. Well, I'd body surfed, you know, maybe four or five times in my life, and my friends, oh, let's go over the wedge. Ah, oh, that'll be great. That's pretty stupid. Because they were, they were in, I imagine the waves are only running, you know, six, eight feet when they get 12, 15. But even at six and eight feet, even at three feet, it's amazing what a wave can do to you. You're completely out of control. You, you have no control whatsoever. It was all I could do to get out. I swam out, and it was all I could do to get back in and, and, and stay in because it wants to suck you back out. Waves, uh, waves can do a lot of damage to you, and sometimes we get hit by a wave. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various waves. It doesn't say waves, it says trials. But sometimes trials come in sets. Uh, and, and it knocks you over, and it blindsides you, and you're not quite ready for it, and then you get your feet under you, and you're just starting to say, okay, and starting to deal with that trial, and then boom, another one comes. And you're like, my gosh, and you kind of, you know, okay, here we go, and you're, you're trying to assimilate and adjust and all that, and then boom, you get nailed again. That happens, doesn't it? So last week we made a couple of points, um, actually made three points. One of the points we made was that, uh, is that trials are a certainty. It doesn't say count it all joy if you encounter. It says count it all joy when. So trials are coming. Secondly, uh, uh, trials are, uh, are different. Uh, everybody, you know what? Everybody in here has got a trial. Everybody in here is dealing with something they don't want to be dealing with. Everybody here has something you're praying about and asking God to take away. 
That's a trial. So we've all got them. But our trials are different. So the trial that you're dealing with, the guy sitting in front of you, he's not dealing with the same trial. For some of you, it's, it's your business. For some of you, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a family issue or a marriage issue or it's, uh, uh, it's a friend and a betrayal and a trust issue and this. and It can come in a thousand different ways. Everybody's got trials, but they're different. Um, the, the, trials, um, the trials are the conditioning process we looked at last week. It's how we get in shape. It's how we're able to run a marathon. It's how we're able to run an ultramarathon. Because trials bring about endurance. Count all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You cannot run a long race without endurance. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a marathon. It's one of these ultramarathons, 100-mile marathons from Death Valley up to Mount Whitney. Christian race is a long race. Eugene Peterson wrote a book with a great title. The title is simply, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's the Christian life. And at times it's a, it's, a, it's a painful race. At times you just are tired of the race. Sometimes you get weary in well-doing. That's where some of you are tonight. I mean, that's just, that's, that's where we are. I'll tell you, by the time Thanksgiving rolled around this last year, I was tired. I was just tired. I remember walking out down by my pasture and... Uh, uh, checking to see if my cows were still there. And uh, I remember walking down there, and I, you know what I said out loud? Out loud, because there's nobody around except the cows. And I, I just said out loud, you know what? I'm tired of being tired. I'm just tired. I'm not tired. I'm tired of being tired. You ever get that way? Sure you do. Because it's a long race. You get tired of running. You get tired of fighting the battles. You get tired of dealing with stuff. Unless you're some evangelist on TV with weird hair. <laughs> and nothing ever goes wrong in your life. Right? But if you're normal, if you're normal and not contrived and not plastic, and if you're really walking with Christ, you got stuff. Now, there's something in this text that's weird. That doesn't add up and that doesn't make sense. Unless you've got the right perspective. Unless, unless you've got the camera on the right setting. We're talking about trials. They come in waves, okay? Here's what it says. And this is what we didn't really hit last week. He says, consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's weird. Because that certainly is not my response when I encounter a new trial. I don't think it's your response. It's not human nature for a trial to come into our lives and for us to be uh, joyful over the trial. We're joyful when trials lift. Uh, we're joyful when a prayer is answered and the answer is yes. We're, we're joyful when you get the financing for the new venture. 
Now that's joyful, right? But consider it joy when you encounter various trials. That's not natural. Here's what happens when trials come into our lives. Let's take our video camera. When trials come into our lives, what our tendency is, and it's the most human and natural thing in the world, the natural tendency is to zoom in on the trial. You hyper-zoom. All you can see is the trial. All you can see is the disappointment. There is, depending on the severity of the trial, uh, you might be in shock. You might be stunned. Uh, you have lost something. Uh, it, this was unforeseen. This was not in your 90-day plan. This was not in your seven-year strategic plan. And, and, and so you're shocked and you're stunned and you're kind of in a state of denial. And everything else is out here. Everything else is peripheral because this trial is so intense and unexpected. You zoom in on it. Just human nature. You don't want it. You didn't ask for it, but it's there. And you're, and you're having to readjust your life to the trial. You see... With trials, we zoom in. Now, how in the world, let's just be honest here, how in the world do you take a trial, how do you consider it all joy? Honestly. I mean, is this guy out of his mind? Is this book not inspired? Is this one of those places where, as the liberals would say, or the moderates, whatever that is, I've always said a moderate is a liberal in drag because <laughs> they don't have the guts to declare what they really are. But anyway, is this one of these places where the scriptures aren't inspired? Remember picking up a commentary on Ephesians written by a professor at Fuller Seminary, and I remember reading along and reading just the opening and him pointing out that Paul really wasn't the author of Ephesians. Well, that's kind of interesting, because it says that Paul is the author of Ephesians. But this guy had a lot of degrees, and this guy was real smart. He was so smart, he was stupid. And he gave all the reasons why Paul didn't write Ephesians. So I shut the commentary and never used it. Is this one of those places where the scriptures are incorrect? Um, no. It's all a matter of perspective. Number one, note this. It doesn't say, feel it as joy. It doesn't say, experience it as joy. God has given us emotions. Emotions are part of our lives. They're real. So we, uh, sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad. Sometimes, uh, man, we're just victorious and Life's good and life's sweet, and sometimes we're in the pit. It's part of life. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down. It's the way it works. He doesn't say experience it as joy. He doesn't say feel it as joy. See, those are emotions. What he says is, he says, consider. When you consider, you don't use your emotions. When you consider, you use your mind. Big difference. So he's not saying when a trial comes into your life, walk around and act like you're happy and act like you're weird. He's not saying that. 
when a trial comes into your life, it's hard, it's tough, it's difficult. If it wasn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a trial, right? If you felt good about it, it wouldn't be a trial. This, this isn't what we want, but it's there. All right, so what do you do? And, and, and I think, honestly, there's a little bit of process here. When the trial hits, knocks you over, you got to get your feet under you. you got to get your wheels under you, and you got to kind of adjust. And, and because, because when these things happen, it's like uh, in Psalm 42, he, uh, that whole section there, he says, why are you in despair, oh, my soul? See, when you get into a trial and these things knock you down, what happens is you got to get your wheels under and you got to go through a pro- You ever just wake up in the morning a little bit depressed? Do you? Sometimes I do. I, I'm just being honest with you. You know, uh, it, it's been interesting because um, probably the beginning of this year, I'm sharing a lot here tonight. I watched Oprah this afternoon, so I want to be vulnerable. <laughs> I told you I was tired of being tired at Thanksgiving, and I was. I was tired of being tired. But we had a good break and all that good stuff. For some reason, I, in January, when January kicked in, I was fighting off some depression. And I was trying to figure out why. Because I didn't have a lot to be depressed about. But I'd wake up, not every morning, but some mornings I'd wake up and I was just kind of down. And, and so when that happens, I'm trying to analyze, why am I down? What's going on here? And it was like I had to battle it, and I had to work my way out of it. And it would usually take me a couple hours. And I went through the process. I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about in his book, Spiritual Depression. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and a great man of God, he said, sometimes in the Christian life, our, our great problem is that we're listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. I mean, you went to bed and everything was fine. You wake up and you got this cloud of depression. So the guy in Psalm 42, he doesn't listen to himself. He talks to himself. He says, why are you in despair, oh, my soul? Isn't that interesting? We, we create a lot of our own doubts. We create a lot of our own difficulty in our minds. And a lot of times we'll hit a trial, and then we immediately take that trial. Some of us are really good at this. We take that trial, and we work it out as far to its logical conclusion if everything goes wrong. And before you know it, in a matter of minutes, we're frantic. You hear the word cancer. When you think cancer, the immediate thing that we usually think of is death. A lot of people die from cancer. It's amazing today how many people get cancer and don't die. But when you hear cancer, boom, we immediately go to that conclusion, don't we? Right? How many guys in here have had cancer? Amazing how many guys. Yeah. Ed, you put your hand up. Yeah, I didn't know that. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And some guys die. Our buddy Lance... He's with the Lord now. He was with us in November. You understand what I'm saying, don't you? 
it, it's amazing. And, and what happens is, say you wake up, you got a little depression. What, what, what do you do? What, you you got to talk to yourself instead of listening to yourself. I, I, I spoke with Greg Laurie out in San Diego I don't know, a few months ago. And, and Greg said, I really like what Greg said. He said, you know, about three or four times a day, I just got to say to myself, shut up. I really like that. Sort of the same Martin Lloyd-Jones principle, and it's a little more, little more crass. You know, just shut up. Because you're listening to yourself. Well, you know what? God won't be gracious. God's forgotten you. God's not going to take care of you. God's not going to get you through this. Shut up. Gosh. What is my problem? So you got to talk to yourself. Now, all right. When you talk to yourself, what you've got to, because see, what happens is you get these waves, depression, that's an emotion. How do you work your way out of that? You've got to start using your mind. Count it joy. Consider it joy. Think it as joy. Don't feel it. In other words, you zoom in, but there's a point where you've got to start zooming out, and you've got to start pulling back. The, the most important thing, listen, guys, it, how do we get through life? If we, don't, if we don't have a foundation of biblical truth, you don't get through life well. Philosophy. I mean, you read philosophy. Most of these guys are just screwed up, and their lives were screwed up. They're just a wreck, just an absolute wreck. Paul Johnson wrote a book. I can't remember the title of it, but he's an historian, and he wrote about some of the most significant uh, philosophers and scholars in history. And basically what he did, he just did short biographies on these guys, what they taught and then how they lived. They just were screwed up. You read about Rousseau. You read about... uh, Oh, gosh, I, I, uh, who, who was the guy? Henry Miller. Uh, gosh, they're just, you know, and they're so influential. John Paul Sartre, oh, you know, just so influential. Every major dictator of, of the last part of the 20th century took Rousseau's philosophy and Sartre's philosophy, and they slaughtered millions and millions of people. It's ama- amazing how many of them were in Paris and influenced by certain right. There's despair. Listen, God tells you the truth about life. He created it. And he tells us how to live. And he explains to us, not everything, but certain foundational things that we are to know in our hearts and in our minds so that when we encounter hardship, that's our foundation. That's our bedrock. So, So you hit the trial, you hit the hardship, and you're feeling all the stuff and the anxiety and the worry and the shock and all that stuff. You're zoomed in. But at a certain point, you got to start zooming out. And what you got to start doing is you got to put the Word of God into the equation. You got to put the Word of God in front of the camera, and you got to start looking at your circumstances through the eyes of this book. That's the only way you can ever take a trial. You pull back, and you can think it, you can ponder it as joy. Let me give you, have you done 15 minutes yet, Lou? Okay, that's really good. You may not think it's good. I think it's good. Because 
I got three things here for you tonight. Let me give you three ways to think of it as joy. Not feel it as joy, but this, I want to give you three shots from the rest of Scripture. Because how in the world can I think of a trial as joy? Well, I'll just give you three. There's a lot more than three, but tonight we'll look at three reasons, three truths, three doctrines from the Scripture that helps me deal with a lousy situation I don't want and actually ponder it, think it, evaluate it, and be joyful. Here's number one. Think it is joy because God is your Father. Then we go to Hebrews 12. Think it is joy. Consider it joy because God is your Father. If you turn to your left, you'll find Hebrews chapter 12. We pick up around verse 5. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. I remember when my daughter Rachel was born, and uh, first child, pretty little blonde-haired ringlets, you know, very, very smart, very articulate. She was about 18 months old, and she's talking up a storm. Very strong-willed, by the way. Just how she was made. And uh, we had something going on, and she didn't want to do what I'd asked her. And uh, she just didn't want to do it, and she wasn't going to do it. So I picked her up. She's about a year and a half old. And I'm just, I'm just holding her. And we're kind of dialoguing. And I couldn't let her win because uh, I wanted her to have a good life. And she couldn't, uh, she couldn't start thinking that the world revolved around her. So she needed to learn to submit to authority. And that's what was going on. And it was some little issue, but that was the real issue. And so we're having this interaction. She's maybe 18 months, maybe, yeah, I'd say maybe two, somewhere in there. And she can really, and, and she's got a vocabulary, and she can talk, and she can express herself, and she's expressing her will, and she's telling me, Daddy, I'm not going to do that. And I said, no, you are going to do it. And she said, no, I'm not. I said, yeah, you are. And she said, you can't make me. I said, I, yeah, I can. If you don't do this, I'm going to give you a little spanking. I'm not going to do it, Daddy. So I took my... Because she's a little kid. I took two fingers, and I took her little hand, and I went, just like that. And she just hysterically wailed, bawling. Just totally lost it. No sounds. No sounds. She was so internally crushed and shocked and saddened and in disbelief, that, and I'm waiting for her to come back down, and suddenly, she went completely limped and passed out on me. She just fainted in my arms. And I thought, I've killed her. 
I mean, I was, I was stunned. She just, she just went. <gasps> I mean, it just, I mean, I was shocked. She just went flat out limp on me. She just fainted. And I, and I got tears in my, I mean, I, I started tearing up. And, and, and my mom happened to be there. She was over in the kitchen. And she looked, and she just walked over and grabbed Rachel. And she just held her like this. She went, <laughs> and just blew in her face. <laughs> and she brought her. My mom said, you okay? I, I said, yeah. I, but I wasn't. I was shaky for about a day after that because I thought I'd really damage this little girl. Uh, what does that say? My, my son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Uh, Rachel just fainted on me. Some of you know my brother Jeff. See, the reason my mom knew what to do with Rachel, because when my brother Jeff was a little kid and my folks were disciplined, he'd just pass out on them. You know, it's a little passive-aggressive thing. He'd just go, he'd just flat out faint. And after a couple times, my mom talked to the doctor, and he said, just blow in his face, he'll be fine. He'll come right out of it. And he did. And so did Rachel. Whenever I read this text, I think about that. Sometimes, oh, God's going to discipline. I don't. <laughs> okay. Look it. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, this is significant. And I'll tell you why this is significant. Because you see, the very fact that you're going through a trial, and, and God. You know, he's got his foot on the accelerator and the brake. He controls the ebb and flow of your life, the good and the difficult. And, and what he does is, through the circumstances of our lives, he providentially oversees what's happening in our lives because he's doing something in our lives. Uh, what, what, what happens is, when there is hardship or discipline or trials or whatever this is, that in itself is a sign that he's your father. Let's go on and see what it says here. It is for discipline that you endure. Now, that's interesting because James says, think it is joy, consider it as a joy, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance. Here it is again. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, quite a few in this culture. Right? Ever drive you nuts when a kid's out of control? I was at a Christian bookstore the other day. I'm in the parenting section. <laughs> and there's a gal with three little kids. She's looking at books in the parenting section. And she's got this little two-year-old, little guy, blonde-haired, good-looking little kid, just out of control. I wanted to grab about 10 of those books and put them in her cart. Here, read these. I, I, I didn't say anything. She was just embarrassed. She was overwhelmed. She was in the right section. I'll give her that. That's not the kid's fault. It's parents' fault. Man, I remember in the early years at Stonebriar, it seemed like every time Chuck would get up, 
there'd be somebody sitting in the middle section with, with a little baby. And you know, it's a little baby. Babies are supposed to cry. Or a little, little toddler. Little toddlers aren't going to sit still. But they don't sit on the end or sit in the back. They sit right in the middle, third row. And Chuck will get going. Critical point. Lives are at stake. People are making decisions for eternity. And this little kid gets out of control. That's not the little kid's fault. That's a parenting fault. That's a parenting issue, right? And nobody wants to say anything. Let me say something. Don't do that. We like your kid. We don't like you. <laughs> Be a leader and deal with the situation. Okay. I've wanted to say that for years. <laughs> They're probably not even here tonight. What the heck? It's for discipline you endure. God deals with you as with sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you were without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, if you've never experienced trials from the hand of God, he's not your father. Well, he's the father of everybody. No, he isn't. He's the creator of all, but he's not the father of all. There is a special relationship. Book of Romans talks about the fact that we've been adopted into his family. Not everyone's been adopted. Not everyone will be adopted. But because he loves you, because you were chosen before the foundations of the world, he is your father. If you have never been disciplined by God, you need to ask, do I know him? Am I in his family? So you see, when a trial and a, a hardship comes, at some point you've got you to pull back, you've got to zoom out, and you got a considerate joy that he would love you enough to bring this into your life. I don't want it. I don't like it. But he's my father. And he's a good God. And he knows what's best. Nine. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. Sometimes fathers make mistakes. Your dad made mistakes. My dad made mistakes. They wanted to do it right. They didn't get it right all the time. Now we're fathers, grandfathers. We don't get it right all the time. We're just guys. We're flawed. He always gets it right. He never errs, ever. Ever. The ten is powerful. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Boy, that's an understatement, isn't it? Now, now think about that. What does this say? All, all discipline at the moment seems not to be joyful. Okay, I'll buy that. I would agree to that. That's my personal experience. This is not joyful. It just said it. But in James, he says... Think it. Consider it. Joy. Why? Because I'm moving out of the realm of being controlled by emotions and backing up and thinking about what's going on. Okay? Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is just good old-fashioned Bible doctrine common sense. And people, for years and years, who didn't even know Christ, they lived off this. This is how they disciplined their kids. So you got a kid in high school, and you've done everything with him, and the kid, you know, he's got a snarl, and he's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and he's got a bad attitude, and he won't study, and he won't do this, and 
We tried everything. What do you do? I mean, what do you do with a kid that just won't shape up nothing? He just doesn't. What do you do? Send him in the Marines. You ever seen a kid go into the Army? You ever see a kid go to the Marine? You ever see a kid go to boot camp? Just the kid's a loser, lousy attitude, no direction, no, no nothing. Just a troublemaker. Send him off to boot camp. He comes walking in four months later. Yes, sir. Sucker's got drive. He's got discipline. He's got a purpose in life. You've seen it a hundred times. How many of you guys ever went through basic training? They do that at Disney World, don't they? And then they take you to Six Flags. And then what is it, a four-week Caribbean cruise? They don't do that. What do they do? They put you through trials. That's how we mature. That's how we grow up. So you see, when you back up, you zoom out, you consider it because the trials are proof that he's your father. I, uh, my son John asked me today, he said, Dad, have you heard of the blasphemy challenge? I said, what? He said, go to blasphemychallenge.com. I said, okay, maybe you've heard about this. Print it out their website. Listen to this. There's an outfit called the Rational Response Squad. It's a group of academic atheists, uh, different writers who have published books. Give me a second. Uh, uh, one of them is former Christian fundamentalist Brian Fleming. He's also joined by Robert Price, one of the teachers of the Jesus Seminar, which speaks against the divinity of Christ. Professor Richard Dawkins, author Sam Harris, historian Richard Carrier. They've done a DVD called uh, The God Who Wasn't There. Um, uh, and they make up this thing called the Rational Response Squad. The Rational Response Squad is giving away 1,001 DVDs of The God Who Wasn't There. The hit documentary, see that's a play on Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There. The hit documentary that the Los Angeles Times calls provocative, which you would expect of the Los Angeles Times, being the idiots that they are. I say that, of course, in Christian love. <laughs> so in other words, you can win one of the thousand copies of the DVD. There's only one catch. We want your soul. It's simple. You record a short message damning yourself to hell. You upload it to YouTube, and then the Rational Response Squad will send you a free The God Who Wasn't There DVD. It's that, it's that easy. Here are the instructions. You may damn yourself to, how, to hell however you would like, but somewhere in your video you must say this phrase, I deny the Holy Spirit. Why? Because according to Mark 3.29 in the Bible, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. I don't think that's a direct quote, but that's how they've rendered it. Jesus will forgive you for just about anything, but he won't forgive you for denying the existence of the Holy Spirit. They're not quite right on this, but you, you get the sense. Uh, ever will he forgive you. This is a one-way road you're taking here. Once you have shot your blasphemous video, just follow these two easy steps. And basically, you put it on YouTube and then they verify it, and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and they'll send you a DVD. So you see, you think of it as joy. 
next time you hit a trial. That you're going through a trial because he is your father and you know him. That reminded me of Romans chapter 1. Flip over there real quick. You see, when you're in God's family and when you're God's son, he'll send you trials and he'll refine you and he will test you. But not everyone is in his family. And you see, if you're not in his family, instead of disciplining you, you read in Romans 1, beginning with verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, the truth that God exists, by the way. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Every one of these guys know, they know that God exists. They know it. They know it because God has written the truth on their hearts, and then they know it as they observe nature, as they, as they use their telescopes, as they use their microscopes, as they study, um, uh, 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 gosh, I'm blanking, um, uh, DNA. You're telling me there's no architect to DNA? That's like some Bedouin that's been out in the sand dunes all of his life on a camel, drinking camel milk and cooking on camel dung. That's all he's ever known, and he comes over a dune one day, and there's a 500-class Mercedes sitting there with a hum coming under, out of the hood. He's never seen anything like this in his life, and he walks over, and he, hears his, he looks at it, he's a little scared of it, he just kind of circles it a few times. He sees this, he pulls it, it opens, and there's a blast of cold air in the 135-degree temperature. He works up his courage and actually sits in the seat. Not only is Blair air blowing on him, air is coming up through the seat because they have that now in Mercedes. And he's kind of, he doesn't mean to, but he hits a button and music comes out. And he thinks to himself, this is the result of time and chance. That's how this got here. No, you see, that Bedouin isn't that stupid because he didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> he's just a Bedouin. And he's going to think, who put this here? Who made this? But these guys are described here. For since the creation of the world, I'm in 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. They know he's there. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their, ex their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became as fools. And that's what they are. Well, that's very harsh. It's the word of God. They're fools. Well, I'm sending my kid to this school and this school. How many fools are your kids going to sit under? Have you thought about that? I'm just asking, have you thought about it? I mean, it always amazes me. Oh, my kid's going to this, going to go. Okay, great. So you're paying how much for him to send under these guys that are going to undercut everything you've ever taught him? I'm, maybe he's ready for that. Maybe that's what I'm just saying. Think about it. I got it, Lou. Thanks. You, you see what I'm saying? Think about it a little bit. <sighs> Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God, watch this. Therefore, God gave them over. In other words, if you want to suppress the truth about God 
and you want to deny what's been clearly seen, you know what God will do with you? He'll give you over. You want to go that way? Go. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They know it's a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. The nature channel. All they do is worship the creation. And it's an amazing creation, but it points us to the creator. Right? So you see a special on spiders and you say, glory to God. Right? You're not medicated like I am, so you're not real expressive, but you say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> this stuff hacks me off. Gosh. For this reason, 26, God gave them over to a degrading passion. Women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. That's not natural. That's not genetic. It's unnatural. It's ungodly. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. We see that in our culture. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. You see the process? If he's not your father, instead of disciplining you, he will just... You want to go that way? Go. 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 So you see, when you encounter a trial, you can take a step back and you can say, I don't like this, Lord, but you know what? I'm counting it as joy because I'm in your family and you're my father and you know exactly what you're doing in my life and you are training me for righteousness. That's a biblical response. Am I making any sense at all? Number two. Does that take an act of our will? Well, sure. Sure. Whosoever will regarding salvation. Well, uh, we're talking about two different things. Let me explain this real quick. You're asking me because you, you say, does that involve our will? And you're asking me a question about, about the will, and I made a statement that our wills are enslaved to our nature. If you read Ephesians 2, uh, and the will follows the inclination of the heart, and our hearts are desperately sick and wicked. And that's why the scriptures say that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so he has to make us alive. In other words, for us to be saved, and the, the term would be in order for us to be, have our sins forgiven, we have to be justified. Before we're, our, our, our wills are locked up into our nature, and on our own we won't choose God, according to Psalm 14. There's no one who does good, there's no one who seeks God. But... After we're justified, after we're saved, after regenerated, our wills are made alive. And so now he says to believers, let him who steals, steal no longer. Because the will has been set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. That make a little sense? We can talk a little bit. I, I can't get on that now. But it's, it's worth discussion. Okay? Let me do number two here. Here's the second way. And I know I'm out of time, Lou. I know that. What am I going to do? Here's number two. Think of it as joy. All right, what, what's here's number two. Think it as joy. Consider it joy because he's preparing to use you. You're not just going through this thing because it's the luck of the draw. You're not going through this trial just because it's a wave that randomly hits you. That's not why you're going through it. Philippians 1.6 says this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. But it's a process. 
It's a process we go through. It's a process. So when we come to Christ and our sins are forgiven, it's justification. When we die and go to heaven, that's called glorification. There's no pain. There's no suffering. Paul won't be in his chair. Won't that be great? Lance isn't suffering from cancer. That's glorification. Man, that's great. So my, I'm forgiven of my sin. I'm justified. Then one day I die and I go to heaven and I'm glorified. No pain, no death. Okay, okay. In between is called sanctification. And we're in a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. And, the way, and, and so no pain, no gain. That's why Acts 14.22 says, Through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God. Not some, not a few. You go to, you go to boot camp for the Marines, you're going to have many tribulations in order to be changed. But he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. You're in process. If you read Psalm 105 about Joseph, all that Joseph went through, Joseph was tested. Joseph was refined. That's what's going on with you. That's what's going on with me. Number three. Think it as joy because trials are temporary. Here's some perspective. Think it as joy. Consider it joy because trials are temporary. You say, wait a minute, I might die from this disease. You may die from your disease. Robert Morgan in his little book, Red Sea Rules, says this. In his last letter, the Apostle Paul boasted in 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, the Lord will deliver me from every work let me back up. The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Yet days later, he was beheaded, his body cast aside, and his head tossed into the grave after him. Was he, after all, delivered? Yes. Yes, he was. He was snatched away from the evil that surrounded him, removed from tears, pain, stress, and sickness, taken where Satan could no longer harass and be present with the Lord, which is far better. When Vance Havner, the wonderful North Carolina evangelist, lost his wife to disease, he was just broken and depressed. But out of the experience, he later wrote, when before the throne we stand in him complete, all the riddles that puzzle us here will fall into place, and we shall know in fulfillment what we now believe in faith that all things work together for good in his eternal purpose. No longer will we cry, my God, why? Instead, alas, will become alleluia. All question marks will be straightened into exclamation points. Sorrow will change to singing, and pain will be lost in praise. Because our trials are temporary and we are going into his presence forever. So I can consider it and think it as joy as I'm on my way. That helps me, because it's true. We bow, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for truth which sustains us. It's not easy, but your good sovereign hand is all over the one who is in the trial.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.